Welcome back to the Ship It Podcast. Uh, today we're going to talk about what clean code means. I'm going to pass around the room. So I'm Brandon Askov. I'll be talking from my perspective on this today, which is uh, that I don't always have the cleanest code and, and I fall into this trap a lot. Uh, I'll pass to my left, Matt. Uh, my name is Matt Merrill. I'm a developer at Rocket. And uh, I think I fall on the opposite spectrum of things sometimes where I try to think, make things too clean. Yeah, my name is Simon. I'm also a developer at Rocket. And I think I'm also coming in the camp of probably trying too hard sometimes. And I'm Devo, also at Rocket, and um, yeah, I would say I'm the opposite. I would much rather be messy. Okay. Oh, cool. We have like two. Yeah, this is good. Two camps, All and right. we're literally, we're physically on the opposite sides of the room. Yeah. So, right. so yeah, this came up from an article that was being shared internally. Goodbye, clean code. Goodbye, clean code. And if you Google that that phrase right there, it'll be the first uh, the first hit that you get. It's a great article. It was in, it was it was well written and had some good code snippets, and it's something that I think we've all sort of seen before, where they describe. Um, in the this particular article, they were talking about shapes and sort of you know resizing or drawing those shapes with those kind of drag handles you see in a lot of applications like Photoshop or whatever. Um, and they were doing this in code, and they had a different handler for every single corner, so there was a lot of repetition in the code. And even even reading through it, knowing where the article was going, and I saw that rep- repetition, I'm like, oh well, you could just dry that right up, right? Don't repeat yourself. Um, so you're going through that, and you're seeing how, and they they walk through the process of how they did optimize it, and then later on. As those tiny little shapes got more requirements, that it actually got way harder to use that consolidated code to actually understand it, to work through it, and read it, and then optimize it, and then push it further. It ended up being a bigger nightmare if they had just stuck with the original sort of verbose version of it. It actually would have been an easier solution in the end and much more human readable. So I think that the lesson, well, here I'll tell you what the lesson I took away from the article was. Uh, the lesson that I took away from it was that. Um, we have been trained over time to optimize code when we see repetition, but we often will sacrifice human re- readability for that. And that's usually the worst trade-off. And I think that we've just been trained to make this mistake since we started programming, because that's usually like the 101 thing, right? Oh, now you see it twice. How can we reuse that? And we do that all the time so much that it's like our default. And it's my default. And I am one of those people that this like really spoke to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my old... Uh... VP of engineering that became our CTO described like the different pillars of engineering. So it'd be like, it's defect free and it's performant. And, um, the number one was maintainable on his list that he shared with us because you can't fix a bug. You can't fix performance. You can't do anything if your code's not maintainable. Right. Well, we just saw this thing that we were passing around. Um, well, actually I, I was catching up on the engineers channel cause I was out. So this could have been like five days ago. But there was an article about this legacy code problem. It was like a Twitter story about this guy who worked for a bank. It was like a pension fund. And they knew that there was this code that ran that basically processed something into a CSV file that every other subsystem below it needed. The code had been optimized for performance over human readability, and literally nobody knew how it worked or how to fix it. And then one day, it didn't because of the Y2038 problem, which is something that's fascinating that I didn't know about and is not the topic of this podcast. Google that. Basically, that that same problem was there where uh, someone opted for performance, which we'll call, you know, optimizing the repetition in this case. They optimized for that instead of human readability, and then no one could adopt it later on. So it was a big problem. They lost $1.7 million over this incident, which is... A scale that I thankfully don't have to think about. <laughs> Unreal. What makes it human readable? Let's talk about that. Is it the variable naming? Because like, if you look at Java, where you have these super long names, is, is it's it a combination of things? I mean, yeah. I think the problem with this this topic is that there's so much to it. Mm. It's like, yeah, I mean, how you name things, how you organize things, um, and that's like on so many different levels, right? Like the file name, the folder name, the like the act- your actual code. 
I think there's a term, I think it's something like cyclomatic complexity or something like that. It has to do with nested ifs and whatever blocks you have. And that adds a lot of complexity and that by nature will also make it harder to read and understand. Yeah, that's actually like an actual metric that you can point to. Yeah, it is. I mean, some linters will actually catch it, at least in the .NET world. And they can warn you if it's too high. Or Yeah, I mean, I think the problem with like all of these things is that they're like that is an indication of something and like yeah naming something in some crazy casing like is definitely an indication of it but like there is no hard and fast rules and i think we all try to like apply it's actually like a cognitive bias i think as um that we think like automating these these rules makes is is the best way to do things but like it's so complicated and situational that like um it's i mean it's not possible to define i don't think so there's no way you can have some program enforce it, you know? Yeah. I feel like in some ways it's like the, the art versus pornography argument. It's like, what's art, what's, what's pornography? You know it when you see it. Because like I'm sitting here thinking there are certain abstractions that absolutely make code easier to read. But I cannot, like, I couldn't even begin to think of like which ones and like why. But like you have to know when to put that abstraction in. If you try to guess at it up front, you will inevitably, like, I don't know. I feel like you will inevitably screw that, that up because you don't know. Yeah. Um, I got into that, I guess, discussion like years ago and ended up posting to Twitter about it on an account. I don't have anymore, but, um, so, so our listeners will not be able to find it. <laughs> no, no. But, um, I mean, like, the way I simplified it is that no abstraction is better than a bad abstraction. Oh, yeah. You wrote you wrote a, a blog I, post about yeah. this on Rocket, right? Yeah, we'll I put that in that blog post because it's just something that, like, I believe in. Because yeah. you can always combine your code into something, but it's a lot harder to, like, break your code out of an abstraction, you know? So this is sort of the, we're lightly touching on this unit idea. Unit testing, having unit functions that are single-purpose functions. And I'm wondering, is that sort of the answer we're leaning toward? Because at the same time, I feel like that could add complexity, especially if, especially how, if, depending on how they're written. Um, Can you say more about what you mean? Yeah. So I was actually thinking back to this, this shape thing, right? Yeah. So it's like, if you wanted to test each one of these, are you testing each handler for each thing, even though there's a lot of repeated code? Well, and then they start to vary in time and sure you're going to, then it, it's hard to see the future too, right? Like, am I going to need to have a very different handler for this rectangle than this square or this parallelogram or whatever? Um, so do you dry it up now? And then you have one thing that's reused, your reusable unit function, which is kind of what happened in that case, right? They tried to dry that up and make it one piece of code. Like now it's testable, now it's readable, and now I'm using it. But then you try to reuse it in cases where it's not very reusable and that's when it breaks down. So it's I almost am trying to hear this as like, are we looking toward the... F- future of our projects when i'm writing code like when am i going to have to reuse this and will this thing need to change yeah i mean i think a lot of people will just say oh yeah it's it's something that we could reuse in the future so let's just like abstract it but like you look at some of the things that people do that with and you won't you absolutely will not um so like just wait you know what the stuff that we always end up needing to be yeah all the stuff that in my experience always needs to be reused is the stuff you didn't abstract yeah, people always <laughs> like do it that's wrong. That's always the way it is yeah. for me. I feel you like it's almost like the Murphy's future. law. You can't predict the because future. Because that's the yeah. stuff that's easy to understand and use, basically. That's a good point. I think there's some clear examples of things that like should be abstracted. You have like an email service, you know? You're not going to write the code to connect to like an SMTP server oh, yeah, in right. some function that you have. Like, no, you're just going to have a service and it takes like Data who it's going to, what's the email, and like that's it. You know, like right. it's a very like 
utilitarian function. I, I don't know if that's the right way to say well, that. Look, you actually just made me think a of like, it's just a utility. Like it's it's like I don't know. I don't know how to like encapsulate that in like it takes practice, right? You just in, a, know. in simple language, like why does that make sense to abstract? You know, I think if you, I think this is something that you know, if you're a junior developer, you might not necessarily know right out of the gate. But as you become more senior. As soon as you get into a project, if it's Greenfield, like if you're if it's Greenfield, you kind of have like you kind of start to it's almost like Terminator. Like you see like that, like scanning view, like, OK, I can kind of split this out as long as you think of it in terms of those services. I feel like you go into it with a much better you you start from a much better place, right? Like, OK, you might have some duplication across your services, but if you start there, you probably will end up with cleaner code. To begin with, you just can't go overboard on it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think I think kind of what you're saying is that you have to think about like the hierarchy of your right project. Right. Like, what will not lead to clean code is throwing all of your logic into like a controller. Right. Like that probably won't serve you well in the long run unless it's super simple. But if you do like pull some of that apart right from the get go, you'll probably be better off. Yeah, it's just defining those layers. I think. I also think that there's this. Maybe I'm going overboard already. Well, I'm gonna, I think we've seen people <laughs> like this before, where there's. Um, let's talk about files, actually, like file structure and files. So, have you ever seen someone who's like, "Oh, this file can't be more than this many lines, or it can't be oh, wider yeah, than this sort of column length, or whatever, definitely. or it can't have more this many more functions in it?" Like, it almost is a pre-optimization to say, "Break out your stuff before we need it." So, when you said controllers, I was thinking, yeah. I usually, especially on Node and backend stuff, because it's funny, I tend to be a little sloppier there because I just care more about the front end, but it actually ends up being easier code to port and fix them later on because it's like, oh, it's just a, a big function that does too many things. And like now I can start fixing that. And I started dirty, got it working, and then went back instead of pre-optimizing it. Um, in the case of controllers, let's say it's a routing controller. Okay, so you put all your routes in one, or not actually, that's not a good way to put it. It's, uh, it's for posts, right? Uh, I want to look at blog posts. Um, okay, well, what if it's a video blog post? Does that still go through the post controller or is that a video controller? What if it's a recipe blog post? Is that a new controller? Or do you kind of just keep building your post controller to handle all these different use cases? Um, what's more readable in the end? I think what you're saying is all of oh, those are slightly different, so they'll have like different inputs when you're creating them. Yeah, but I guess the point that I'm driving is more about developer experience. So if I was going to hand off, this is actually a good example because you handed, I handed you a project like this um, where the, the back end was a nightmare. So uh, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It shall not be named. Um, so uh, I handed that project to you and there were there was a lot of like just jamming stuff into one file and it probably could have been broken out better and, and fixed and cleaned up but it was one of those well actually i said it at the time when we did the project and it's a theme of this too that there's nothing more permanent than temporary you think it's like, going to last for three months because we're oh, we're going to switch a cms to this other thing and then a year and a half later you're still like why are we still living in this this hellscape that i've created um yeah <laughs> so in terms of like the files it's like i i've seen the opposite of that too and more on front-end projects and i know you've seen it where if you have let's say it's front-end you have a component you call the component a folder name. Let's say it's um, my contact form. And underneath that, you'll have an, uh, an index file. And then below that, you have like a button folder that's for the contact form and the input fields that are for that contact form. And they have an index file inside of those because next to them, they have tests and they have styles next to those. So you get this weird mini structure that looks like you're trying to build a component library, but it's just your website. So I feel like that's a pre-optimization I see a lot nowadays, and it definitely drives me bonkers. Well, I mean, yeah, I've it, seen that. It became really popular with like, and this is more, it's more like less about code than it is the stuff that holds our code. But you know what I mean? Oh, but it's so important. 
Oh, man. It became, I think, popular with, like, the higher order component thing, which, like, I'm very much against, where it's just, like, you have a higher order component that takes this one prop that then does something with it and makes one new prop. So then you can, like, compose, you know, um, whatever you need for your page in, like, a quick, you know, 80 to 90 steps. But they're so oddly specific (laughs) Right. That like, well, if it, the pro- if it comes with a prop that says, you know, it's called A, then we want to do something and make it into B. Like, I'm not going to reuse that single thing. It's like super specific. And I think that's I think that's um, I don't know, that's my take on like where that all came from. Yeah, it seems I mean, we it's like I know the one particular product that I'm thinking of, it was using Recompose, which is no yeah. longer really a thing because of hooks. The guy who wrote Recompose is now working at Facebook and made hooks. Which is funny because I also hate hooks, but <laughs> um, I just think that there's, is it, we talked about this a little bit um, around like hero worship or like, are we just chasing the f- trend or are we bucking? Like, I feel like you're bucking the trend. I hate it, but I see that code all the time. Um, at least with file structures. I, I think, I think people do follow trends in general because they're just not sure what like the next level is. I mean, they want to keep up with, you know, like what's the latest way to do this and, you know, best way to do that. But like, I mean, a lot of times there is no actual answer. And I think people just have to be comfortable not like not knowing, you know, it's like, well, sometimes this thing will work. And sometimes this is a little bit better. I mean, a lot of times it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, which like pattern you follow or anything, you know, it's like the whole house of cards isn't going to, you know, come tumbling down. It's just like, well, it'd be slightly easier if we did that. Yeah. It would have been nice if we did it that way, but like, we're fine, you know? Um, so I, I, th- I think a lot of the problems in engineering in general come from like this, um, I don't know, like fear of the unknown. Um, I think you see it as like developers get more senior too. Like they'll cling on to things and like they'll want to like optimize things a lot. Like they don't know what the next thing is. So um, they take everything to extremes. Like, oh, I'm the best at abstracting code. I'm the best at making code faster. I'm the or pretty, yeah. pretty, yeah, whatever it is. It's muscle. It's like muscle flexing. I feel like people don't like get enough opportunity in their careers to like actually like grow and like you have to force it into project work and like it's like oh I I need to show off what I can do and I'm gonna make this crazy abstraction or you know to take it what you, to use said Brandon like use this new thing and show off that I know this stuff. When in reality, like you, you just need to get like your job is to make code that works for right. a business. But it's and weird that we feel like we're learning by doing that, by sh- flexing and like doing my show and telling me like, oh, I did this optimization. Right. You Look feel you I'm feel learning. like you're accomplished. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But really, yeah. that's I don't know if I would say it's always wrong. It's probably not always wrong, but a lot of the time that is wrong. Well, this is a great segue. So before we get there, we should uh, carve out some time to talk about our sponsor for today. So today it's going to be uh, Ghost for Gold. Hi, this is Ben from Ghost for Gold. It's that time of year again. The holidays are over, your in-laws are barely out of your guest room, and your home is now lousy with ghosts of all kinds. We all have extra ghosts this time of year, and we ask that you consider Ghost for Gold. Ghost for Gold will give you real gold for your ghosts. Enter code DAVO today to enter into our sweepstakes for Master P's solid gold tank from the Make em Say Uh video. You can visit us at ghostforgold.com. Thank you, stay spooky, and back to your program. All right, and we're back. Um, so we were lightly talking about this before we, we took that little break. Um, let's talk about 
the solution here, which I know is really vague, because like we were talking about, it comes with experience. It comes with this uh, almost like code smell aspect of it. But it's weird because sometimes those code smells are what got us into this clean code mess in the first place. Like, oh, look at this repetition. That's a code smell. I'm going to clean that up. Do And we kind of mentioned it earlier. It's like, do we wait for the pain? And what is that pain? You know, like think about a project that maybe someone would hand you that was like, literally their first javascript project and it was like their website and like can you help me optimize this and it's probably going to be like everything in one page it works they get it what's oh, the right man. answer i would rather have that project i would rather have the one that has duplication as long as it's easy to follow all over the place like real truly if i were to inherit a big code base like the hard ones to the hard ones are the ones where people flex and show their show their abstracting skills and you get a deep you get a like I always find when I get into a legacy code base that I have to figure out, like I have to do, I have to be a detective and I have to figure out what the thought process of that original developer or those original developers were. And if I have to go through abstraction to do that, it takes so much longer. If it's just duplicated or it's just all in one file, it's easier to do. It's like, yeah, you need me to rip out that new feature? Sure, I know exactly where to do it. And then there's always the risk of me going in and trying to pull it apart and abstract it, but I got to curb that. Yeah, it's, it's it goes into a lot of things too. Like most of the answers to these questions are like, well, it depends. And in this particular scenario, like, yeah, well, it's probably fine if you're a single developer, but once you start scaling up the team or what have you, then you might run into pain points. So, well, we both need to work on the same files. So I'm going to end up with, uh, you know, merge issues and whatnot. So it's probably not ideal to have it all in one file anymore at that point because we'll need to be able to work this, make it go forward. Yeah, I, I also wonder if there's this notion that um, we've seen on a few projects where people are like try to make component libraries before they really exist. It's sort of like, oh, I bet if I make my input like this where it supports everything input support. Who does little, that? My little input component. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you know, if I make, let's say I have an input for a form and all it needs to do is validate an email. But then it's like, okay, well, I need to support, who knows who's going to use this in the future. So I need to support ARIA labels and types and, uh, you know, password fields or whatever. I feel like, sorry, just a quick pause. I feel like Scott O'Brien just heard the word ARIA and he's like running over here. Yeah, he's like, I got something to say. Um, So I feel like there's also that, and maybe it's just because of the way the front end code sort of lends itself. It's like, yeah, you're writing components and like, who knows what's going to use this in the future. But just, it's so hard for me to write only what I need today. And just that, like, great example is what I just said, the on validation thing. So let's say if I made an input field, I would call it on validation or on validate something, something vague and actually not readable, but really all I really care about is validating email, right? So I would have an event listener for that. And it's like, well, it should be called on validate email or on email change or whatever, or maybe on input change and then validation happens elsewhere. So I'm being, I'm trying to be vague about it, which makes it less readable and still very prescriptive. Yeah, I, um... I'm actually doing something similar, something similar right now. Like I'm setting up, you know, a new project and everything. And I, I guess I took a different approach where I have on the inputs that I made, I kind of made like a type attribute and it can be password or email or whatever. But because of the way I wrote it, it's just open. So you say like, I already, even though I'm only using like, I don't know, just regular text and password fields right now. I can write the code for those cases, but since it's it's an option in there to change it, I can go expand that later. So it's like just setting yourself up to be able to be flexible in the future. Because, yeah, I know I'm going to need an email address eventually, or I know like it's going to be t- um, like numbers only or something, right? But it's like 
just giving yourself the flexibility but not actually writing it i think is the key for something like that i see so in that case it's like you didn't go too specific and it ended up being more flexible in the end because you know you're like you're going to have to write the email handler at some point and sure you can pass an email type now and it won't do anything different so the only thing you'll have to do in the future is add the logic for an email field or and then later a password field or whatever yeah well i wouldn't add the like the email one right away it's just like because it can be i define the types it can be and you can just add that new type email and then yeah write the handler for it so pretty close to what you're saying yeah so i think we should probably talk about um how we got here especially when we think about um i actually haven't read this code but if you think about the code that like sent the apollo um lander to the moon you know it was it's like much less code than what we write today. I don't know if that means it was like optimized for performance or readability, but it did its job very well. And um, that was a long time ago. So it's sort of like we're maybe we're going backwards. And I wonder, let's go, let's, let's cover the history. Let's, how did we get here? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't know at all. But I, um, I mean, the things where I've seen this the most are in old like video games. So you, you know, like how um, an old video game, you'll have eight levels. It's like, that's because that's all that fits into that register. Oh, yeah. Um, huh. Kill screens and all that. Um, yeah. Exactly. Um, so a lot of things that like I think people did back in the day were to like work around the limitations of a computer because you have 8K of memory or whatever it is, and your hard drive is like one megabyte if you even had one at all. Um, and a lot of that stuff I think is pretty like fascinating how they can make something work, like doing crazy things like bit shifting and stuff, you know, just to like think about those Pixar movies that came out way back when it was all on computers, you know. That were really pushing what they did at the time, yeah. And like, you have to do a lot of hacky things to get the absolute most out of your hardware. But I think, I don't know, I don't know. It's just like the way I've been thinking about it is that like that whole idea of being kind of like a, a, I don't know, a clever developer just like stayed in the DNA of engineering somehow. And I could be totally wrong, but um. Now we have abstractions. We don't have punch cards anymore. We don't have 8K of RAM. Our phones have like 8 gigs of RAM and like 6 cores or whatever it is. And like we have a, you know, on top of assembly, we have like, you know, some C layer probably. And then we have some like, um, you know, JavaScript talks to some C layer there. And there's all these optimizations that it goes through. Um, It even tries to figure out like, well, it could do this or this. So it tries to make like both versions of the code compiled and stuff just in time. And it's like, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore. Um, You're saying like now is the time when we don't even have to think about that stuff. And yet we are still. Yeah, exactly. It's like they're managed languages. You don't have to clean up your memory. Just make a bunch of variables and it will just go away. If I had to clean up memory, <laughs> like, I don't think I'd be a developer. So. Yeah. yeah, I don't <laughs> enjoy I, that's it. That's my embarrassing I JavaScript. <laughs> yeah, I don't enjoy that stuff either. But there, You can also say there is some argument for why we still need to worry about that in certain cases. Like... There's been a lot of influx of things like Emmet or Electron. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so yeah, like Electron is like infamous for using a lot of memory and RAM. Like Slack is yeah. one of the good examples of that. Chromium, basically. And yeah, like a lot really. of people use Slack these days, or Teams for that matter, which I also think is Electron. Microsoft Teams, Might, probably. It, it looks, it looks and like I think it, Microsoft is going to React Native and React a lot as well. So a lot of those cases, like the performance there is just not great. It works because computers these days are so much more performant and have so much more better hardware but so the people won't have to think about the performance as much so the, yeah i mean there's definitely exceptions it's like if you were going to send something to the moon yeah it's probably going to be written in like c very small amount of code that runs very quickly um and this is a case too yeah like slack and chrome use like a ton of memory um but i mean i think the solution for like 
at least the memory part of it is just like just buy more memory. It's like fifty say, bucks. My, and my now computer you, is loaded with memory. Right. And from my point of view, VS Code and Slack run fine. And I'm on my thirty yeah. Chrome tabs. Run okay, fine. hang on though. You can't force your users to no, buy more. Memory. Well, no, this goes into the whole thing about like us. We all build on like top end machines, and that's yeah. yeah. That's but I but I mean, like to, to Simon's point, like that's like a fundamental platform decision that you really need to think about up front. Yeah. Like like yeah, like if you're if you're gonna be if you're gonna have users in like you know third world countries that have really low power phones, you probably should not be yeah. using. I don't know React Native. I'm making that up, but you know what I mean. Assuming that you're just like running a, a website, right? Like I, I, I see. I definitely see what you're saying. Like, yeah, yeah. I know. I know what you're saying. Um, it depends on your audience. So, like, yeah, Slack or Chrome. I mean, right. it's going to be like a lot of developers are going to use that stuff. So they're going to have like sixteen thirty two gigabytes of RAM. It's a lot of corporate environments that have high end computers. Where, yeah, I mean, I've, I've done work with other countries, and like, yeah, it's like they have one point five megabit internet at best. You know. Where I have like three hundred at my house, actually, like, yeah, on the lowest plan they have, you know. I mean, I've been, I still deal with this with a lot of our customers. Where, like, I grew up in this era of like the black art of compression, compressing JPEGs and getting the right <laughs> size or video or whatever until you get the perfect balance between quality and like delivering it to end users because who knows what connection they have or whatever. And didn't come out right. Tweak that knob, see what happens. <laughs> the black art, yeah. Oh, you did it. Uh, don't 88. touch my settings. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I end up having all these little presets that are like mine, don't tweak them. Because um, that's just what I did for a long time. But I it was really hyper-focused on that. And this one customer, con- like that little tiny avatar images, like three megabytes. <laughs> yeah. Like there, this particular homepage, I ran an audit on it one day and I was like, it's like 20 megabytes of images. It's insane. And uh, But a lot of people don't think about that anymore because it's optimized by some backend thing or some service and it's like oh just upload whatever and you're done with it now that's talking about images at like a more content editorial kind of thing but to your point like the tooling and the computers and where we've gone now kind of don't make you think about that as much anymore but you're right why in in our dna is this thing where it's like i still want to optimize like look i look at that clean code thing and i'm like i would have optimized that ahead of time like in that article, the the, the handle, the yeah. handle. Yeah, I, I I like what you said. I feel like it it is in our like in our DNA, our mentality. We just want to do it's it. Like, maybe because like the fundamentals of like engineering haven't really changed all that much, right? You know, like the people that wrote the original books had to care about these things, you know. And then we basically write books that are more modern versions of those about a new Standing new language. I don't know how to break it. It's like it's a really weird. It's like how do you break a habit you've had for half of your life or whatever. You know, right. however long we've been doing this kind of thing. It's, well, uh, I, I think what you said. And it's be- not always bad to Simon's point. Sometimes you want to do that. So, yeah, yeah it definitely depends. I mean, I don't know. In the, in the read means that I, yeah, it, does, it just comes with experience, really. I mean, in the in the project that I'm working on now, I put right in the readme. It's like there are no hard and fast rules. I love that. I read that readme. Oh, you know what I'm <laughs> talking did, about. Yeah. Um, it's like just be an adult. I don't, like, I don't know. That's a lot of our mantra here, I guess. But, um yeah, I don't know. Like, we don't know what it's going to be, like, what's going to be best in that situation. Just make it as pleasant of an experience for the next person as possible because you don't want to be the person maintaining that code forever. Well, Jesse said before, uh, so one of our founders, we tried to rope him into this and he's too busy, but he did leave us with a little nugget, which is, you know, most code doesn't live for more than a couple of years. And he, you know, kind of threw out, like, what we were, I started thinking about it. What products have I created in time? that it probably are still running on that same code that I wrote, if the product even still exists at all. And it's pretty—it's a pretty small amount of projects that I can think of. 
And it's true. It's like we, we get so bent about this early days in the project of like, I better get this right now. I got to get it right. And probably won't matter in a few years anyway. Well, there's definitely a psychological aspect to that um, where it's like people want to live forever. Um, so they do it through, I don't know, they do it through their work. You know, like that's why, like why people want statues of themselves and giant arc, deep. Arc, deep. arcways and whatever. Um, just cut to the core of me. But <laughs> that's, why I, that's why I leave funny like, comments in my case. I, I, I think some of it is ego. I mean, I think yeah, that is a thing absolutely. that exists and it's like, yeah, if you made the next Facebook or whatever and like your name's all over it and it's just brilliant solution and everybody just looks at your code and is going to be like, oh my God, this made the product right here. But like in all actuality, like that won't, that's not going to happen. No. It's all small iterations no. on just, stuff too. You, yeah. Yeah. You, you need to go, you need to go like do philanthropy or something. It's not, it's <laughs> yeah. not going to happen through uh, your own home-baked component library. I mean, even if like the product does take off and it's super successful and stuff, I mean, chances are like, you're not going to be known for it. Um, it's very like seldom that's true. I think. I, I like what you said before. Like, think about the next developer. You don't want to be the next person. You, you don't want to have to be the person maintaining that code forever. And that brings me back to like what you, Brandon, you, you were saying at the very beginning, which is like what what makes code readable. And like I've been thinking about that, and I think it's more to the, along the lines of like if you plot me down in this code base and gave me a day to write a feature, could I do it? This is fantastic. I just heard a customer say this yesterday, and I'd never heard this before. He called it the golden hour rule, which is basically if you sit down at lunch, you got an hour, you got to get up and running with this thing that you've never worked with before. Let's say it's a brand new service. I signed up for a file stack, and I want to figure out how to get upload an image, and it goes to S3. That's what I want to do. I I time box my time to an hour. If I can't get that far through it in an hour, and I can't get to a solution at the end of that hour, it's probably not going to happen at any kind of quick pace. You know, it's not good enough. So if you're like wow. you're saying, if you drop yourself into a code base, it's like how long? If let's say you pulled a, a you know low hanging fruit issue off the backlog, you're like oh I gotta make this prop change and I gotta I have to validate an email, right? I gotta validate an email address. Could you get up and running with the code base, even if you kind of someone had walked you through it already, right? You haven't written anything yet, someone walked you through the code base in an hour. Could you do that? That golden hour, that time boxing concept. Is this kind of like a similar concept to like the whole like drunken QA thing? I don't know what that what is, is that? but I love where this is going. You've never heard that? <laughs> no. Um, I thought you were going to say like Pomodoro. So it is like on. a real thing that some people or some companies have done, but basically like you you can test the stuff yourself usually. And your the idea is <laughs> you get kind of drunk. You sound like my QA already. <laughs> you get drunk and you know, have people try to stumble around and try to use that new feature, a new product or whatever. And it's like, if you're drunk and you can figure it out, then the UX is pretty good. Uh-huh. Oh, interesting. That's great. Um, so that's not wait, article, does this that. apply to code? Because I don't yeah. know. How like drunk. writing the code? Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's very that. important. Yeah, do you have to blow like a .08 <laughs> yeah. or something? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've never done it. I feel like it's two drinks where you're like, I'm feeling dangerous. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting idea. And I didn't know if it was kind of like similar to that, where it's just like, I don't know. You're just uh, you're just limiting yourself in some way, right? Well, we talked about handing off projects too, just kind of tied into this readability and who's going to take care of it after you. And Simon was taking the lead on writing like this whole internal document of like what steps should you take to um, to kind of get that out the door. I know one of the things I was talking about was like blowing away your environment and going through the readme and starting from scratch because it's probably been a while since you've done that. That's a good first step. Simon, like, what other like good advice that came out of that? Because I know you talked to a lot of people about that. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, that was actually a really good one and that's kind of like 
set the topic of that article quite well. Uh, I think the readme is so central to a lot of code bases these days because it's one of the first things you see when you go to a repository. Like, well, it's right there. And so it's good to assemble like links to other resources that might be relevant. Um, set some tone like like Dave was talking about earlier. Like, well, okay, you're an adult. Like, you can make your own decisions here. Um, setting up like, okay, well, these are the basic commands you need to get that golden hour thing going. Basically, okay, well, I pull down the code base. Around yarn start or npm start or whatever you want to do, uh, or if it's not node, God knows what. Uh, and then you know that should hopefully be enough to get you going. Uh, in some cases, there might be more uh, things like with my current client, we need to also set up some user roles in auth zero, and that's obviously not something you can do without getting access to other systems. So there are other steps beyond that yeah even just getting like a token for your environment yeah exactly so like stuff like that that's good to be aware of should probably be in that readme or available through some other means um i always like readmes that have like a prerequisites or like a section that says like you're not going to be able to do much unless unless you you understand this yeah exactly yeah Yeah, exactly like here's the here's the concepts that we're assuming you know or the access we're assuming you have like that's super but if you have to go into these other systems and stuff i mean i feel like that's kind of a red flag, you know. You have to go into some third-party thing and set up yeah, a new user role and everything. It's like I feel like you should just be able to install the dependencies and start more. You know, the ideal world, yeah, of course, yeah. They're not ideal. Well, it, it's yeah. kind of like I mean, I don't. I'm not really like a huge Docker person, but like Docker, it's like you can just say Docker start or whatever it is, and it's like, well, now I have my database and I have this thing and that thing, and it's like. To the consumer, well, I guess in this case, another developer, like that's huge. Yeah, yeah. yeah Docker Compose is make made it a lot easier to get to that point, especially. Right. It's funny we're talking about a slightly different level of this. It's like almost that a clean start leads you to understanding maybe not clean code. So it's it's a tangential topic to the clean code. Uh, I think yeah. I actually think we're on to something here. Yeah. But because like what what you're saying about the README, I feel like if you have a good README, you can paper over a lot of other problems. And you had mentioned like you do the d- discovery of like um, the investigative track of like oh this is what this person was thinking. And I had mentioned like the the yeah. nested component files like that. I'm like okay this is a higher order component type of project. That means I'm going to see a lot of that prop passing. Where are these higher order com- um, these uh harder functions kept you know um and i go find those but like that comes with time you know you're like oh i've seen this before i know what to look for um and then you kind of start to see the little things in there like oh jesse wrote this function because it's called something weird and it does nine things you know oh poor guy i know he's not here to defend himself yeah whatever (laughs) yeah like that i've i've done that before where i'll I'll, like actually stick like a readme file in a subfolder and be like look this looks like madness, but here's my thought process, huh. and here's why I did it. I've never and, done that. Yeah, it's yeah. like, because I know the decision I'm making is not optimal, it's just like, all right, I'm going to do as much as I possibly can for the next developer to figure out what was in my head and why. It's just like that old like argument about like you only use comments to document why instead of how. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. it's like a very large extension of that thought process. There's a danger there, too, and I think a lot of old folks uh like old developers probably you no, yeah not even. but like in general when people say well okay comment or documentation can be real helpful and i completely agree the problem will be once that becomes stale and if the yeah, new developers on the project don't have that uh, drive to make sure it gets stays up to date right. 
and that's something I think is a big problem because if you don't do that, you might end up with comments in the code or documentation that doesn't quite apply yet. I think we see that at product companies a lot where we, we have the mentality to not do that at an agency because we know that there's a final date. We know there's going to be a handoff at some point and we got to take care of that problem, um, especially if you want them to be successful. But if you're working at that product company, you don't have that mentality of the, the, the end will come one day. I might roll off this team even. That's probably even more common or maybe just leave the company. And so those readme's don't get updated because there's this it's just not a priority maybe that's it maybe there just needs to be a bigger priority so when we do these tech debt sprints it's like that tech debt should be someone should be updating that readme as a story during the sprint instead of just cleaning up code right yeah like it yeah. i think people should ask themselves more often like if somebody walked into this code base tomorrow it's without me here yeah, yeah you how always have to I? think that when yeah. new people start, i don't think people do though when I new don't. people start i try to get them to make notes on the parts that were missing or were painful and then that's yes. their first pr that's, that's exactly what that's I was going to say goal. is that it's such a good practice to like whoever is onboarding, like at least tell me, yeah. you know, at least complain to me like, all right, what didn't work here? You know, it's like, yeah, what was missing? Um, what took a long time? And like at least keep track of that stuff um, so we can start working towards like getting people into the system faster. Yeah, because you just don't know. Yeah, because like, I don't know, your, your thing's been set up for like three years and like. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't thought globally, locally, like, I don't know. Yeah, it's just like... <laughs> I haven't gotten a new laptop for three years. It's been working fine. Yeah. It happens. Like, you get a new laptop and you're setting up your dev environment again, and you're like, oh, oh yeah. This is rough. Where's that artifactory file? You're like, oh, I got to point to that thing. Like, I go to your old laptop and, like, get your MVMRC file or MPMRC file off of wherever it is. Like, yeah. Um, so, okay, so that's, like, the, the stuff around it. So, if I was writing... So, for the people who are in this, like, middle ground, like, they're becoming senior... I don't think we're going to get through to the senior people. <laughs> they're, going to, they're either going to agree or disagree. So, they have to come to these conclusions. Yeah, on their own. they've already met. They yeah. know what they're thinking. So, for the people that are in that middle ground that are like, okay, it sounds like there's some advice that might come out of this. You know, how do we? How can, they're going to ask? How can I write clean code today? Obviously, readable means something. Let's and we're kind of touching upon that. Um, so maybe that's the key. We we said a readme, but in the code itself, what makes it readable in our minds? I first one that comes to mind good function names and not having like to Simon's point earlier not having like huge methods that is one that I think I will stand by this how's that for commitment that I would like that's a rule that I would definitely follow like break up break up things into lots of methods that have really good names it tends to lead itself to good readability yeah mine's naming conventions and it's kind of what you said so if you think about functions like my boolean functions are always is something or has something it always starts with that prefix uh if it's a true getter or like a property on a javascript object it never starts with the word get it'll be like dot users or dot posts not get posts because it's not getting anything it's already there so if i have a method that needs to go fetch something i might call it fetch i might call it get depending on what it's doing but i tend to start my function names and variable names with a certain prefix that kind of lends itself to a convention yeah, has open. permission. Yep. Is user. <laughs> is open. Is, yeah. yeah. Is sidebar open or something like that. that yeah, definitely. Stuff. That's definitely a good tip. Comments help, obviously. We always say that, but leave so few. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I saw the most was just too many files. It's like, it's okay to have a utility file where it's like, I've been just making what I've been calling like services lately. And it's just like, this is the authentication service. It sends you in, it sends you out. It verifies the token. Um, you know, it handles like if your thing's expired, it's going to kick you out of the system. And it's like, I don't know, five, six functions or something. And like, that's it. It's fine. I don't need a file for that. And then 
each one of those, like, then that has an index file that points to all of those smaller things, you know? She's like, I just need a central That's place for this. From me personally, yeah. <laughs> um, if you have if you have things in functions, it really doesn't matter. Like, like even, even if you're in a huge team that you're going to be working, you know, you might have merge conflicts. Merge conflicts are always easier to deal with if you have separate discrete functions. So, like, there's not a great argument to like split up across files so i'm agreeing with you wholeheartedly. yeah splitting up functions and and then putting them in different files is just giving yourself more work it's more of that especially if you ever look at like if you have vs code open it's everything's an index.tsx file in your little tabs yeah, exactly. and you have to keep this house of cards in your head and god forbid someone bumps you or interrupts you during that time and you're like oh how many files did i have open eight okay here we go again like <laughs> yeah well and that's what it leads to right is a lot of times these things are so rigid and actually specific because they should not be their own abstraction that when you want to add a new prop to something, you have to go through all of these functions and add that new thing into each one of those functions because they're called in, you know, in sequence or whatever. Mm, that's a good one. I mean, I definitely agree. The index files, they need to go away because they're, they're just not helping anybody. But another thing we haven't really talked about much is testability, which is related to this. And obviously just testable code doesn't mean it's easy to read and maintain. But it does help a little bit if the code is easy to write a test for, because then that's uh, a great the point. test can add. Yeah, because the then yeah, the test will sure. explain how you use it. The test can explain like, hey, this is how it's meant to with this input. This is the output I should get. Important to not test the implementation, of course. But there's a whole school of that too. Uh, there's but, been plenty of repos that I've gone to where they don't have a README, and I'll go find tests and go, ah, okay, yeah, there it is. Yeah, and I have it like a years ago. I was dealing with this old. Uh, csharp.net project and this very complex business logic calculated like how how uh, a portfolio should get invested like target different things and it was just hard to understand what was going on there so i ended up writing a bunch of tests to make pretty much have 100 percent coverage because as we were going to refactor this and make it a completely new product basically i had to know that what we were doing and how we used it was correct it's a great way to learn. Yeah. And, yeah, and that way I learned all about the implementation. I understood, okay, how the code works, but that was, to me, very important to make sure I could maintain the product going forward as well. Uh, the, your, your point about testability, though, is a really good one because if you, if you have a method that has all kinds of side effects, when you te- like, it's not a testable method. Yeah. And if you have a ton of side effects in code, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably much harder to follow and read, so that's a good one. Yeah, we've seen that too. There's... Um one particular code base, and it's pretty entrenched now, so you can't really change it, where, you know, we think about unit functions as in it takes out something and it spits out something and it's consistent every time. But this particular code base was more like, let's mutate everything along the way. So you pass in an object and it's kind of going through a flow and it's mutating all the way down this tunnel and then it spits out the other end of the tunnel. And when you try to unit test something like that, it becomes really painful right away. And I know that there's different schools of thought around like test-driven development, but it does make for cleaner code in my experience. Yeah. I always say design for tests. Like I'm not a big I'm not big on the TDD dogma, but you I don't say have to design the test, for tests. But if you, yeah, okay, yeah. well said. Yeah. You it's not like you have mind. to test everything you have, but if you keep that mentality of let's keep my function small and specific yeah. and well named, <laughs> then we'll be okay. I, th- I think to like level that up that the testing thing. If you have a good test runner and test framework, you can do things that just make it a lot faster to discover what's possible and not. Mm-hmm. So actually yeah. the one I was thinking of, it was a .NET one. Um, I think it was N unit and you can on top of a test, give it an array of things to try. Mm-hmm. So you can have a passing test and then a failing test. So one expects it to fail. One expects it to pass. And you, uh, uh, unlike say the passing one, you know, um, 
you put in a bunch of different variations like oh it's in caps it has this character that's all fine has an extra space it can handle that and then and then in the failing one you put like well it's null or like um it has some invalid characters that you can't use um but it's nice because you just have those two things and then at the top of them you just say these things work these things don't and then it like you don't have to read anything good docs yeah it's fantastic yeah it's like self-documenting I wish we had test runners like that in JavaScript. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't, like think, the I don't think we do. There is, oh, what's that called? There's an extension. Uh, it's like, uh, I forget what it's called, but there's an extension for VS Code, at least, uh, where you basically might be Wallaby JS or something like that. I don't know if you heard of it. I've heard of it. It's Wallaby. a paid extension, so but you can get it run for free. So, But it helps you with... Uh, I'll pay for good tools. It <laughs> like, gives you all the feedback like right away, and you can, it also comes with some uh, VS Code, like, REPL-ish thing oh. going on. Uh, so it gives you instant feedback for what code does, and given these like inputs, like, what can I expect this out of this code to happen? Like, stuff like that. Yeah, so it sounds like we have, we're saying have some conventions you can follow. Keep your stuff flat to start with, for sure. Don't get too many files. Make it testable. Make it testable. Um, name your files well, too. Don't just call them all the same damn thing. Um, but also think it out ahead of time. Like, you're going to have services and controllers and... Yeah. yeah. It's almost better to, like, if you're starting a project and, and you're just starting from scratch, like, break it up by theme. You know, controllers, services, and put it services.js. Not a services folder. Start there. And oh, then that's interesting. move away from that as, as it gets, like, really hairy. If you find yourself, like, I have to open this file in three different tabs to kind of jump around it for the different methods I'm using. File-driven development. Ah! I think we've and we've hit it on a new DD. Yeah, it almost could be, uh, like, a subtitle to the episode name. <laughs> okay, so another thing that was mentioned in that article was going into a pre-existing code base and cleaning it up, which is very different than starting from scratch and probably something we see a lot more often. Yeah. It's different from my perspective, too. So let's say you were the sole developer who was like, clean this stuff up. You don't have to worry about politics on a software team. Let's, let's assume there's no politics and you're just tasked with being the sole guy to like fix this code base and make it good. So it's only in your eyes that it has to be good. It's Where just such start? an overwhelming task. You have to be kind of incremental about it. Let's say it has no tests. Has I, no start, tests? I would start with tests. Okay. Because that's pretty common, right? You see a lot of like legacy code bases with no tests. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, especially if you're going to do a lot of changing... You want to make sure that what you start with and what you end with is the same, even though it's written. Yeah. So that is like, I'm not a huge test person, but that does make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. It's hard to port anything or move anything or refactor anything without knowing that it's going to work the right way. I think if I honestly, my honest reaction to that question is if somebody asked me to do that, I think I would really sit down and be like, why you have a perfectly good working code base. What's the reason? Like, don't you want me working on new features instead? Yeah. Like, what's what's the reason? It's a really good question. Is there this necessity to clean up code when we don't really even have it? Yeah. I mean, is there a bug that refactoring will fix? Okay. What is the specific goal? Well, sometimes it's something yeah. really business-related, too, where they're like, well, we have to do our due diligence with our tech thing because we're being acquired by another company, and this code base has no test coverage. Oh, uh, yeah. That okay. happens. Yeah, Here, that's here's a reason, a, though. Here's a good one. When we need to change a string of text, we need to do it in 50 different places. Yeah, okay. Like, okay, I'll buy that. Yeah. And that's worth some good refactoring. You know, like, put it in a central file or something like that. But like, Yeah, make it more maintainable, basically. There's this Boy Scout rule where basically, okay, well, now I care for this code base. Okay, I want to make it better for myself to maintain it over time. And if you counter those scenarios where, okay, well, if I want to make this change happen... I'm going to need to change 50 files to make it equally the same across the 
the entire code base. Then I probably want to set up some tests, make sure, okay, this is legit, and then start from there. And okay, now I need to start refactoring this code to make sure I use the same function or what what have you. Yeah, the scout rules really like yeah. th- that's the way that I like to do refactoring and clean up code is like in the midst of something else, do it because like you can kind of like jam in some of yeah. that that's dangerous and i'm uh, i'm i've fixed myself it took me years but i would end up doing that and then before long i'm like my pr is like a thousand lines long because i did a bunch of refactoring along the way hmm. so i would then go yeah. back and so actually now that i have better tools i use git kraken which is a gui for git which i love and basically i commit line by line the pieces that i want just for the fix and then everything else is still an unstaged commit I make my PR, and then now I just branch off that and like, okay, here's the refactor version of it. And then that's a separate PR entirely so that it's not like this too overwhelming thing. And I've, I've had my hands slapped several times for doing this. <laughs> that was one thing in the article that I really liked, um, that Goodbye Clean Code article that he said, you know, his whole story is like, I spent a night refactoring this, and then I came in and my boss was like, don't do that. Yeah, Revert we have to have it. a talk. <laughs> yeah, we have to have a talk. And like, he he makes this point like, I know you said remove politics from it, but I think, I, I don't know. I you think can't. it's really But, but that's like the whole thing, too, I think was a key takeaway from that article, too, was, okay, he didn't communicate at all that yeah. he was going to do this. Right. And that, to me, was a big no-no, because if you're especially in your team like that, then you want to make sure that the actions you're going to take on this code base is the rest of the team on board with this and okay, well, if I do this, is this going to have repercussions with other actions later? Yeah. I have never got in trouble for something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely, I actually, when I was getting in trouble for doing all those refactors, I started switching. Someone showed me you could do this, and I didn't know it at the time, but if you open a pull request in GitHub and you start it with the WIP, like work in progress yeah. prefix, um, I don't know if it's just from that or if it's the checkboxes actually, but if you do that, it actually, I think it will prevent yeah, there's a setting that will prevent you from merging it if it still has that prefix. Oh, and there's cool. another thing you can do where if you add checkboxes to the description, it'll consider those tasks that need to be done. So if you're looking at a list of PRs, you can say like, oh, this one has like six out of eight tasks done, or maybe it's a percentage. But either way, you can kind of see that. So what I would do is open up a PR first, say work in progress, here's what I'm going to do, and then list all the tasks and maybe like what I was doing, and then send it to the team and be like, is everyone on board with this change before I spend a day and a half doing this work? Yeah. And that's that got me around that. <laughs> Yeah. What, what you just described is like, yeah, that if you're on a team, like that's really what you should be doing. You, gotta over, like, you hey, can't over communicate. Yeah. I, I, you know, okay. It's like learning to like, okay, there's nothing wrong with starting to refactor, but like getting, catching yourself and be like, Ooh, before I go too much further yeah, with I'm this, slipping down the maybe slope. I should check. Yeah. Maybe that's the, do you, is this worth it? For like, team-based code, yeah. that's a good, that's a good like feeling that that smell, you know, like that refactor smell. Like I'm refactoring something cause it's exciting. And I'm loving where I'm headed with this, and I can see the optimi- I can see the bright light of optimization around the corner. And it's like, but wait, let me just make sure I'm not going to spend all my time yeah. doing this and check with everyone to make sure that I'm not it's missing something. Check. Or like, I see the code in the matrix now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's um, that's good advice. I feel like it, it's it's we kind of keep touching on this. Like it comes with time. There's some experience there. If you're working alone, it's different. If you're working with a team, it's different. If it's if it's a file-based problem, it's different than if it's a code-based problem. There's a lot that goes into clean code, which is why it's so hard and why we're talking about it. Um, there's no silver bullet for this answer. I feel bad for our listeners. You know, they probably wanted it, but I know. didn't get it. Sorry, we circled around it. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there is. It's so situational. The number one thing is to think about like how you would like to consume that or understand that. Do you that want to yeah. this kind of thing? I think it, I think it comes the down good to empathy. Em- <laughs> I think it comes down to empathy. I really do. I yeah. really do. I mean, like, do you want somebody to have to open up a hundred files to change one property? Yeah. 
Um, or do you that's a thing to, that actually happens. Are sometimes. you a sadomasochist or a <laughs> <laughs> map box problem? Yeah. There's, um, or like looking at a snippet of code that's hyper performant, but you have to sit at it and look at it for like 20 minutes and like, okay, I get it now. Or change variable names so you understand okay. it. Okay. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Now's a good time to talk about picks, I think. Um, it's the thing we do at the end of the show where we just talk about stuff that we like. doesn't necessarily have to be software related. I'll kick it to Matt first. All right, so pretty good segue, I think, from the uh, from the little reference to Silicon Valley that we just did. But Silicon Valley season six was phenomenal. It was one of the better seasons of television that I think I've seen in a long time. So yeah, I personally pick. believe that if you work in this industry, that that whole series is required. Oh, yeah. Same yeah. thing with like Office Space. Like, you have to see it. I have heard some people say, like, I can't watch it. It makes me too uncomfortable. Which I, I <laughs> It's get, like a PTSD problem. It. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. So that's my pick. All right, yeah, my pick is the movie 1917. I just got to see it uh, this last weekend. It's really good. Uh, good it's made to look like it's a one-shot, similar to Birdman and others. Uh, oh, it makes it so stressful. And it's very, yeah, it's very intense. So if you're not in mood for that, <laughs> you should probably not see it. But it was a, quite an experience watching it in IMAX. Uh, and, yeah, you're really in it all the time. And you feel for the main guys in the movie. And just a really good entertainment movie. That's, that's really sold me out of hearing that it's a single shot because I love those movies because they really immerse you in that feeling. And if it, the whole movie is based around that, then, oh, my God, i got to check that out. I, yeah, I guess what came to mind to me is um, Nest.js, N-E-S-T. Um, we started Not to be confused project. with Next.js. I know. <laughs> yeah. That's why I had to spell it. Um, if you come from, like, a .NET background, it's, like, pretty similar to what you used to do with, like... Um, like web API and everything use decorators to say like, this is the path and this is, these are the permissions you need. Everything's, it's very decorator. Based. I love decorators. Um, cause you just write your code like normal and then you add a bunch of like functionality just by like tagging it, you yeah. know, observable. Um, yeah, yeah right. There you go. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, if you're into that kind of thing, definitely check it out. Cool. Yeah. I don't see a lot of decorator stuff anymore because it was like an experimental syntax and it didn't seem like it was actually going to get picked up, but people still use it a lot. Hopefully it I'll goes through. It. I think yeah. it's in stage two right now. I just looked at it uh, yeah, the other day. My pick is Masterclass. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Masterclass. It's one of these like streaming services, but it kind of pitches itself as almost like a like an online course you can take kind of thing with a bunch of different very famous people teaching classes. So Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about science, and uh, Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, talks about business and negotiations. And um, there's cooking classes. There's music stuff. Like Timbaland has a class on there, which has been like fun to watch. It's really it's like $180 a year, so it's definitely on the high end of these services, but it's really good content. Like, if you like learning at all, and I feel like a lot of people in our world are lifelong learners, if you find, like, at least a two or three things on there, they're totally worth checking out. So anyway, Masterclass is awesome. I've gotten a lot of value out of it. Um, it's really, really well produced. Uh, it's, it's fun to watch if you're looking for alternative content and if you like learning stuff. So, all right, I guess that's it. Uh, good luck with your clean code, everyone. And, uh, you know, just keep your head up. It's not that bad. <laughs>